Well, welcome. Really glad that you're here today. If you're new or newish, you picked a great Sunday to come. We are on week number two of a series that we're calling Brave in the New World. And a number of months ago, we did a, a church survey, and one of the questions we asked on that survey was, what are some of the things you'd like to see more teaching on? And turns out you guys like hard subjects, and we made a series out of a lot of those questions. And so over the next few weeks, beginning uh, last week and continuing today, we're wrestling with a number of difficult subjects. We're calling this series Brave in the New World because in case you haven't noticed, the world is changing. How many of you would agree the world is changing at a pretty rapid pace? And if you're a follower of Jesus, um, well, first of all, if you're not, we're really glad that you're here today because you get sort of a window shopping view, window shopping sort of eyes view of how the church wrestles with difficult issues. So I'm glad you're here. But if you are a follower of Christ, my guess is you're wondering, how in the world do I live out my faith in the public sphere in a world that's changing so quickly? And that's the question we're going to be wrestling with over the next few weeks. Essentially, if it's off limits at Thanksgiving dinner, we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, okay? <laughs> if you say to your friends and family, we don't talk about that here because we all want to remain friends, it's coming up in the next few weeks. And I sort of jokingly said, maybe after this series, we'll do a teaching series on church unity because we're going to need it. We're going to need it. Last week, we launched this series and we said this. We said that the church of the future will be a creative minority that has influence without power. That essentially the way forward is the way back. The early church had almost no power politically or socially but over a few hundred years developed great influence. And we opened up Acts chapter 4, and we saw the way that the, the church had influence in the way that it proclaimed Jesus and that its message was very, very clear. In the way that it embraced the fact that there was going to be opposition, and they didn't expect a red carpet to be rolled out. In the way that they prioritized being people who had been with Jesus. And we said last week that the world needs more people present in it who have been present with Jesus. And this week, today, we're going to lay over that paradigm that we set forth last week, everybody's favorite issue, the issue of politics. I have three goals today. One, to show you that Jesus wasn't averse to talking politics, number one. Number two, my goal is to be an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> I hope every one of you walks out of these doors and goes, I don't know if I like that Paulson guy. And then you talk to somebody else on the different side of the aisle and they go, me neither, okay? And my goal, if, if, if I'm successful, I think you will walk out of here going, I'm not exactly sure where Paulson stands politically. Those are all three my goals. So the question is, what is or what are politics? Politics are simply the science of government. It's the way that we organize our collective life together. The word politics comes from the Greek word police. Will you say that with me? Police, which is where we get our word city. So city or community. 
And so politics are the way that we decide through laws and policies that we are going to operate as a collective group of people. So if you're part of a city, you're a part of politics. If you're part of a community, you're a part of politics. And politics are sort of one of these necessary evils in a sense. We need politics. We need government. Because without government, the lowest of the low, the oppressed, the weak, get absolutely run over and taken advantage of. And so politics are there to protect the people that are the most vulnerable. So because we are fallen people, we need politics. We need government. But look up at me for a second. Because we are fallen people, politics and governments are messy. Anybody want to say amen to that? If I were to try to summarize our current political landscape, and I don't have enough time this morning to trace for you how we got to this place, only to state it as at least a perceived reality on my part, you can agree or disagree. If I were to describe our current political milieu, my one word would be divided. And I would follow that up maybe with a close second to volatile. That it feels like a volcano that's just sort of bubbling. And every once in a while, it erupts. It erupts over presidential elections. It erupts over gun laws, over gay marriage, over economic policy, over immigration, over race relations and race riots. We are a divided people. And in some ways, the world always has been. If you have your Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Let me set a little bit of context while you're finding Mark 12. Jesus has been asked a question about his authority, and now he's going to be asked a question about his politics. And explicitly stated in this text is the reason that people are asking this question. They want to trap Jesus. And politics, I mean, imagine this, it's like, politics was a contentious subject 2,000 years ago. Not a whole lot has changed, has it? So they're turning up the dial. Jesus is sort of marching towards his crucifixion and subsequently his resurrection. People want to pin Jesus. They want to have a reason to kill him. And so here's what they do. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. You there? Great. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to what? to trap him in his talk. They wanted to get him to say something that would infuriate one of these groups. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And it's, is it lawful, they ask? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? I read that in a condescending manner because as you'll find out in just a moment, they ask it in a condescending manner. <laughs> but here's what they want to do. Two groups of people. Two groups of people that previous to Jesus, Jesus united them around hatred of him, weren't really friends. You had the Herodians and here was their perspective. Their perspective was, if we can get the right person on the throne, 
If we can get someone from the Herodian line to step back into power in Judea, then Israel will flourish. We just need the right person on the throne, and then everything's going to be okay. So these people had zero trouble paying taxes. It was in their benefit. Let's get the right person elected. On the other hand, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more religiously pure, maybe. They felt like, no, 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 no. It's not getting a Herodian elected. It's having the Messiah come. And the Messiah will rule. And the Messiah will reign. And if he comes, then everything's going to be okay. And the Pharisees resented with every fiber of their being the fact that they had to pay these taxes. So you see the position Jesus is in. He's in a a no-win situation. They ask the question because they want to force Jesus to compromise, either politically by siding with the Pharisees, or theologically by siding with the Herodians. But here's the problem with trying to pin Jesus into a corner. He's brilliant. That's the problem. That's the problem. And here's how he responds. Here's how he responds. But knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. It was a silver coin, probably around 18 cents in value. On one side of it, it had a picture of Caesar, and it had the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. It was a declaration, Caesar's the son of God. And if you were to flip the coin and it landed on the other side, what you would see is a picture of a woman who was the personification of the Roman Empire, Roma. It was a picture of worship of Caesar and worship of Rome. Not surprisingly, there were a number of people in Israel of the the Pharisaical party of the zealots that had an issue with paying this head tax. In fact, there was a man named Judas the Galilean who previously had led a revolt that got shut down over this tax. It was a contentious issue to say the least. But when Jesus held that coin, He wasn't just holding money, he was holding a way. He was holding a a picture of the way that the world works, where if you have power, then you get to oppress the people that you don't like. If you own the sword, then you get to make the rules. And the Pharisees thought, man, if we could just get, if we could just get Jesus's picture on that coin. If we could just get Jesus elected, if we could just get the Messiah in office, well then, then we will be okay. That was their hope. That was their hope. Which makes Jesus's response all the more interesting. Here's what he says. But Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were like, Jesus, that wasn't one of the options. 
We wanted you to either side with the Pharisees, the conservatives, the theological conservatives, or, or the Herodians, those liberals. We wanted you to pick a side. We wanted you to tell us where you stand. And Jesus is like, I'm way smarter than you, and you will not pigeonhole me into these false dichotomies of choosing from binary options, option A and option B. He goes, I'll see you option C, D, E, and F. Thank you very much. See, Jesus doesn't call his disciples to opt out of government. He doesn't call his disciples to opt out of politics. If you're part of a public community, you are distinctly a part of politics. But he also does not call them to think that power, people in positions of power, have the ability to replace God. You see what he's doing? He's choosing a brilliant third way. Yeah, government has power, but its power is limited, and followers of Christ are called to live in the kingdom while being a part of the empire. Deciding to live in Jesus' kingdom does not mean, does not mean that we are just taken out of the empire or the state. As Paul would write to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul would write to Timothy living in Ephesus at the time. And he said, Timothy, I command you, have men everywhere, have people everywhere to pray for their governing authorities. Pray for their leaders. And I've checked I can't find any Bible that has a footnote at the bottom that says the ones you agree with. It just says, pray for them. If it's Nero, pray for them. If it's Domitian, pray for them. If it's Obama, pray for him. If it's Trump, pray for him. Pray for them, period. <laughs> because you're not taken out of the empire when you become a follower of Jesus. You're placed in the kingdom and you have to learn this dance of living with your feet in two different worlds. Which I think some of our forefathers got. We have this principle in the U.S. called the separation of church and state. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that idea. Most people think it's a part of the Constitution. It wasn't a part of the Constitution. It was actually written by Thomas Jefferson in 1802 when he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association and said, there shall be a wall of separation between the church and the state. There's a clause in the Constitution that's similar, but it's not in the Constitution. But most people, when they think about the separation of church and state, what what they think is that the church shall never have anything to say to the state. That the two shall be completely separate and never connect. And I just want to tell you, that was not the original intent of the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state was intended to free the church from being controlled and supported and oppressed by the state. Okay? So that we are one of the first countries in the history of the world that would not be directly officially affiliated with any one religious institution. 
Essentially, the U.S. was founded on this, this ground that said every religion has the same ability and the unique ability to create a following. <laughs> and uh, lean, in, lean in, look up at me for a moment. As a follower of Jesus, I love this. I love this. Because I am convinced that the most fertile ground for Christianity to flourish is religious pluralism, where the best ideas genuinely win. Because I am convinced with every fiber of my being that Jesus's ideas are best. Are best. But, but okay, we get applause, yeah, yes and amen. Um, I applaud it. <clears throat> I'm for that. But there's some implications for that also. See, as followers of Jesus, our goal should be a nation where we are free to be Christians. That's our goal. Like judiciously, in policy, in government, that's our goal. To be a nation where as followers of Jesus, we are free to follow Jesus. But that also means that we must advocate for people to be free to be Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Mormons and humanists and atheists. If we are going to be for religious freedom, we have to be for all religious freedom. Separation of church and state said, we're not going to judge you based on theology. We're going to judge you based on action. To that I say, yes and amen. So maybe you're asking, all right, Paulson, what does that look like? Roll, roll. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's into 2019. <laughs> well, let me just start by saying, let's not make it overly simplistic. <laughs> because our two favorite options, Jesus takes away. <laughs> he takes away the ability to just say, I'm just going to check out and separate. There was a group of people called the Essenes. Will you say that with me? The Essenes. If you went and you saw the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were at the uh, Museum of Nature and Science, did you go see them? I hope you did. They were amazing. They were awesome. Those were created, those were written by the Essenes. They were part of developing the Qumran community, which was near the Dead Sea, hence the name, okay? And they were people who said to Rome, the heck with you, we're going to form our own little religious community away from everybody else, and we're going to do our own thing in holiness and purity because holiness is defined by what we don't do. Jesus says, give to Caesar. You also had the zealots who were like, we're going to overthrow the Caesar. We're going to get our guy in office and then everything's going to be good. And to them, Jesus says, give to God. See, Jesus disagrees with both the way of power and the way of separation. So here's what he invites us to. He invites us to be people who are engaged politically, but who speak prophetically. This is the dance of kingdom and empire, of Jesus and state, that we live with our feet firmly planted in and on both. This word prophetically, don't think forth-telling. Think of speaking truth to people in positions of power. That's the prophetic voice that the church needs to, in my opinion, regain. 
What does it look like to live life through the lens of the kingdom, through the values of the kingdom, through the ethics of the king? When I start to do that, what starts to emerge is that there are massive flaws in both parties, Republicans and Democrats. And I say that this is, this is so important, you guys, that the church becomes or regains its voice to speak prophetically because the world needs us to play that role. I mean, think of what happens when we don't. You have the, the church in Germany during um, the Holocaust, the, the German Lutheran church that's so in bed with the empire that they have no voice to speak out against the atrocities that are going on. So, so one person recounts being in church and having a church that, that was right up against a railroad track. And during the Holocaust, those railroad tracks were used to transport Jews to concentration camps. And as those cars were packed full of human beings like they were cattle, they would go past the church and they would scream. And here's how this person recounts this. He says, we knew that the time the train was coming. And when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. We heard the screams, we sang all the more loudly, and soon they were no more. Although years and years have passed, I can still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me, forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. And that's what happens when the church gets in bed with one political party. We lose our voice. So what does it look like to have a voice? I, I think it looks like two things. One, I think support your party, whichever it is. And I'm so glad that I get to pastor a church that has both Republicans and Democrats in it because both parties are broad enough and flawed enough to include followers of Jesus. So write that down. You can just think about it later, okay? <laughs> support your party, but see its blind spots. We can't be so party-focused that we have no ability to be able to see where our party, whichever it is, is off. And let's reject the idea that this is overly simplistic. The Bible talks about a lot of issues that are now political issues as a starting place. It talks about the rights and, of the unborn and the value of human life. Talks about the care, care for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. The Bible talks about environmentalism, about foreign policy, about war and peace, about race and equality and violence and justice, about economic policy and poverty, about gun control, not explicitly about gun control, but weaponry as such, as self defense or restraint. Talks about education, it talks about sexuality. And we now talk about gay marriage and individual rights. I show you that list to maybe help you wrestle with the fact that both Republicans and Democrats, Democrats, yeah, that, cherry pick. We cherry pick. 
which events or which, which policies, which things we want to focus on and which things we don't. But maintaining our prophetic voice, friends, maintaining our prophetic voice requires that we recognize that neither party fully embraces the ethic of the kingdom. Neither party. And that's okay. It does not mean that you should opt out or that you shouldn't support it all, but it does mean that you should distinguish between what you think is wise and what you think is biblical. Because the scriptures don't give us a political system to execute. They give us principles to implement. So since I'm already in the deep end and I'm treading water and nobody's throwing me any sort of life vest... Let's talk about the most contentious of all the issues, or one of the most contentious of all the issues, abortion. Abortion. It's one that gets talked about a lot during political seasons, and I think it's a good case study for us because I am convinced that the scriptures were way, way, way ahead of their time when they talked about the value of human life. And when you hear people in our day and our time talk about equality, and you hear people in our day and our time talk about human rights and human values and human dignity, lean in for a moment, you have to know that they are advocating for the way of Jesus and for Judeo-Christian values. That's where we get those, period. And we live in a culture in a day and a time where we want the kingdom, we want those things, but we don't want the king, Okay? So abortion, the scriptures were really clear about the value of human life. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, which, just a quick time out, can we agree that it's pretty crazy that this was happening enough that they had to make a law out of it? But, like, if you're pregnant, stand back a little bit if a scuffle breaks out. But anyway, so that her children come out, so she gives birth prematurely, but there's no harm, the one who hits her shall be fined. As a woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, so if the child that she's carrying dies, then you shall, say it with me, pay for the life. You shall pay for the life. They're, they're in the scriptures, in the law of Moses, they're saying, no, that, that baby in the womb is a valuable, viable human life. Because of that, I'm have to be against abortion. But I've never been pregnant. I've never been single and pregnant. With my back up against the wall and feeling like I had no options. I've never been there. I've walked with a number of young women who have and it's soul turmoil soul turmoil. I think that the reality, friends, that of abortion, abortion isn't going anywhere. You know that, right? It's not going anywhere. I, I think the church needs to be more wise in the way that we engage the platform. What if our platform became, we are, as a church, we are distinctly for the holistic, physical, emotional, and spiritual health of all women. 
And what if, what if, as Jim Wallace wrote, we start to engage that issue, but also some other issues. He says this, instead of opposing rigid pro-choice and pro-life political litmus tests, why not work together on teen pregnancy, adoption reform, and real alternatives for women backed into dangerous and lonely corners? Which is why if, you're, if you are a follower, if you're a person here today and you've had an abortion, a woman who's had an abortion, I want you to know, look up at me. Everybody look up at me. If that's you, God loves you. God is for you. The church is for you. And even as a community of faith, next fall, we're going to launch a post-abortive support group so that you can walk with other people that have been down that road that's really, really difficult. But I want you to know that we absolutely love you and we're glad that you're here but as a church, what would it look like? What, if it, what would it look like for us to have our theology of a right to life and value of life bleed into our politics, both for the unborn and the born? Like, what would it look like if our right to life theology influenced the way that we thought about abortion and adoption? What would it look like if that theology influenced the way that we thought about children in the womb and kids in cages? Like, what would it look like? What would it look like for that theology to bleed over into the way that we view the death penalty, race relations, drone bombings, education, and immigration? So, friends, I think this is where both sides of the aisle only have half the picture, and the world, whether it knows it or not, yearns for a better third way. So yeah, let's see the blind spots, but also let's be people who have an opinion, but refuse to demonize the opposition. Because the way that you respond to people who disagree with you is a part of the message you deliver. The way you respond to people that you don't like, the way that you respond to people that you think are wrong is a part of your message. And if you're here going, yeah, well, Paulson, no real change happens that way. You're too nice, never get a voice. Tell that to Nelson Mandela. Tell that to Gandhi. Tell that to the early church. Tell that to Desmond Tutu. Heck, if you're brave enough, tell it to Jesus. See, I I believe that we have to become people who refuse to allow the way people treat us to determine the way that we respond to them. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, and if you're not, this doesn't apply to you. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, you have given the right up to live under the an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth way of living. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's part of your calling. That's part of your DNA as a child of God. We respond in love always. That's who we are as followers of the way of Jesus. And what if, what if we agreed that what's best for people is what's best? And we could disagree on how that happens and 
the best policies to make that happen. But what if we said our common ground is the common good? And we're going to stand there as firmly as we can. And what's best for people is ultimately what's best. Because really, 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 politics is about people. It's about people. And Jesus said to them, render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Like, if this were a graphic comic book, they were, they'd be going, <laughs> they're just like dumbfounded. Like, we didn't see the, the via media. We didn't see the third way coming. Uh, which this little verse begs a ton of questions, doesn't it? Like, what's Caesar's? Well, his coins are Caesar's. The taxes are Caesar's. Respect is Caesar's. Good citizenship is Caesar's. You know what isn't Caesar's? Worship. And anytime we combine worship with Caesar, it's called nationalism. And the scriptures are really, really hard on people who worship their country. It never ends well for the country or for them. Nationalism is sin, and I think there are probably some followers of Jesus that need to repent of it. But patriotism, being, a, being proud of your country while seeing its blind spots, being a supporter of your country is not. It can be a really, really good thing. So you give those things to Caesar, taxes, respect, prayer. You pray for your Caesar. Yeah, you give him all those things. But what do you give to God? Lean in. You pray for Caesar, but you pray to God. Okay, so, so here's the distinction, and nobody's going to pray to Caesar or Obama or Trump. We're not going to do that, but we may put our hope in them. Oh, if this person gets elected, that, then everything is going to be perfect. Yeah, no, that's praying to. Let's pray for, and let's recognize the fact that we are called to be involved in the empire but friends, do not miss, do not miss, please don't miss. You're called to be involved in the empire, but you are called to give your allegiance to Jesus, to the kingdom. So yes, yeah, support political reform, go for it, but don't lose sight of spiritual revival and don't let your political affiliation with, re, re, with either party cause you to miss the revolution that Jesus has launched. Because one of the other things you give to Caesar is a hard time when you think he's wrong. You don't just sit on your hands. It's interesting. Jesus says, hey, um, <clears throat> give me a coin. Give me a denarius. I thought about that this week. Why does Jesus ask for a coin? Well, because he doesn't have one. I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's intended to be a little bit funny. Right? You have somebody whose face and name is on a coin, and then you have someone who's coinless, and they are going head to head about who's the real king. 
And they have two different ways in front of them. They have two different ways of operating. They have two different ways of being. They're squaring off. In Jesus' day, Caesar technically owned every single coin that had his depiction on it. They were rightfully his. So that's why Jesus says, well, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. It's his. The question is, whose picture is God on? Well, yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. His image is on all of us. As it says in Genesis chapter 1, 27, that we were created in his image. So friends, yeah, 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 pay your taxes to Caesar, but give your life to Jesus. That's his point. Pay your taxes to Caesar, but give your life to Jesus. There will be times when the values of the kingdom conflict with the ethics of the empire. Regardless of what side you're on, choose the kingdom if you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, there are two different ways of influence as Jesus holds this coin. Two kingdoms presented. Jesus is subtly saying that he's the king that doesn't have a coin. He's the coinless king. And yet, and yet, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And he's the king that doesn't have the power. And yet his glory permeates the entire earth. He's coming to bring about a revolution, but not a revolution that overthrows, a revolution that from the inside out changes things. Oh, oh, come on, come on. He's the king who is not elected because he wins an election. He's the king because of his crucifixion. I think probably the reason we struggle is because we actually want him to be the opposite. And when you choose kingdom, here's what you're free to do. You're free to move beyond party loyalty to become solution-oriented. I think, what if the church, what if the church's main platform was, we don't really care about party politics all that much. We care about people. And what's best for people is what's best. And that means you have to engage, and that means you have to think, and that means you have to read, and you don't just vote along party lines. But what if you just started to say, no, 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 what's best for people is what's best, and we want to be people who distinctly and in a very real way do good in our world. Here's the thing. This just in, this may surprise you. If you do that, you're going to be called (laughs) wishy-washy. You might be called heretical. You're not going to be everybody's favorite person. But man, I think it's just such a better way that instead of choosing sides, chase a solution. Chase a solution. Because the thing that matters most is not the image of Caesar. It's not a donkey and it's not an elephant. The thing that matters most is people. People matter most to God. Which is why, as Dan mentioned, we're starting a partnership with the Department of Human Services as their social workers are going to real homes in our neighborhood right here and seeing needs. They then email our church and say, hey, here's the need down the street from you. Is there anybody in South Fellowship Church that would want to meet that need? And you sign up and you give your email. And if you have the ability and the time and the resources to meet that need, you just simply send a response back and say, I can meet that need. And you get to go to the house and you get to meet that need. That's stinking awesome. That is great. 
That's great, because they aren't the enemy. So if you want to sign up for that, you can do that in the lobby right after the service. But maybe this week your practice is just to pray for your leaders. Pray for your local leaders. Figure out what their names are and their roles are. Pray for your national leaders. Pray for world leaders. You're commanded to pray for your leaders, not the ones you like or support, but all of them. And I'll close with this. The nation of Israel had just walked through the desert 40 years. Moses has died and Joshua has taken over. They've crossed over the Jordan River into the land that was promised to them. And their first act over in that new land is an act of worship. They celebrate the Passover for the first time in those 40 years. And they, they, they reinstitute the, um, the, the, what do you call that? The ritual of circumcision. And so all the men are circumcised. And there's an angel of the Lord, the Lord's army, that starts to approach Joshua. And here's the way the story goes. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you a conservative or are you a liberal? Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you a donkey or are you an elephant? And he said, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. See, friends, the question is not whether or not God is on your side. The question is whether or not you are on his side. And let's be people who plant our feet firmly in the kingdom and the empire, and let's be people who live in the way of Jesus. And maybe there's no better picture of that than getting to celebrate the Lord's table today, where we come with all of our political affiliations, but we recognize that above every single one of those affiliations, there's allegiance to the kingdom and the king. So we come as Republicans and we come as Democrats and we come as Americans and Mexicans and we come as, as white and black and everything in between, but we come under one banner and that banner is that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's one body, there's one blood, there's one table and it is his. And in all the ways that we're different, those things are minuscule compared to the thing that we share and that's the declaration that the kingdom has come and that we are his. So as you get ready to come this morning, would you prepare your heart? Would you remind yourself of whose you are and of who you are? And the table's open to all who are followers of Jesus regardless of how you vote. So Jesus, this morning, we want to remember that you've given us this gift to live in this world as it is, but also to live in your kingdom. And we want our feet to be firmly planted in both. So God, give us wisdom. 
Teach us what it looks like to live in your way with your heart. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.